shit, I didn't prepare an intro. Oh, no. You don't have to. Just, just say <laughs> words. It's okay. Welcome back to Midratchet, friends. <laughs> Hi, friends. We hope you're doing well. Hi, friends. Happy summertime. Yes, indeed. How are you, my friend? I am good. Um, yeah, I have. I'm good. That's good. Everything is chill yeah. here. How about you? I am okay. I was telling you a little bit, but I'm going to tell you more now about what is ailing me today. I am just like feeling very pregnant, but I'm also, as you know, like I'm I'm a very like embodied person, you know, so I have always had a pretty good like almost daily or daily yoga practice since I was in high school. And I've been feeling lately that my like very gentle little prenatal yoga routines are not enough for me Mm -hmm. right now. So I found like a a tough one, like, you know, prenatal sweat yoga kind of thing. Some kind of shit that I would do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yep. And I still, like I set up my crystals. I'm getting into it. And this girl is like, she is kicking my whole ass ass, man. And so when I was done, after I spent like a half an hour in the pregnant lady corpse pose, which is on your side, because we can't lay on our backs. Oh. But yeah. So when I was time to go downstairs and like deal with my life, I could not walk my body down the stairs. So I just like sat on my butt and like slithered down like a baby <laughs> eel, just like <laughs> scooted down the oh stairs. <laughs> and I made it, you know. But then I came back up here to do the show tonight, and I made it up the stairs okay. And then I realized that my chair was downstairs. Mm-hmm. Because we had just, you know, had people over this week. And I was like, I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it again. <laughs> so I'm just posted up on this futon, like... Um, just chilling. Feeling like my whole body is on fire. So I, I think I'm going to be back to my gentle routine tomorrow. And then I'll try this one out again in a couple of days when my entire body is done feeling like it's burning. So that's where I'm at today. Oh, so you're not going to be coming to Yoga Sculpt with me? Mm-mm. <laughs> No, no. I mean, nothing is getting sculpted anyway. I'm pregnant. Yeah. I'm getting, like, de-sculpted. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just trying to stay strong, you know? Like, I'm a, I'm a muscly lady, deceptively muscly. So I'm just trying to stay strong, you know? Yeah. Stay legit. But that was hard. That was really hard. I'm, so I'm sorry. I'm glad I got through it. I'm proud of myself for getting through it. I'm proud of you, too. But... I'm going to be moving like a salamander for the next couple of days, I think. <laughs> I have also been getting back into my yoga routine, and mine is always more sculpty and more like mm-hmm. weights and weirdness. We practice yeah. different yogas. We do. We do. But we yeah. Do. So yeah, that's where I'm at. And I'm telling a local story this week, so I also have spent a lot of time just like sitting with it and driving around some of these locations and stuff. So oh, okay. that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. You ready for me to get started? I am ready. Let's do this. Okay, okay. awesome. Sorry, I'm. You good? You cool? I had just. I have itchy eyes, dude. Oh. Still itchy eyes. They won't go away. Yeah, you looked like you were like gonna cry or something. I'm like, don't cry yet. Like the story is sad, but. I mean, it. it I'll play off my tears as allergies, but. I know she's been doing this forever. Tell my secrets. Like, I'm not crying. I'm just allergic to everything. Tell my secrets. Both can be true. That's true. That's true, (laughs) I guess. Anyway, Anyway, stop telling my secrets and tell me a murder story. Okay, you got it. So uh, I am going to be telling us, like I said, kind of a local story uh, today from our northern Indiana region. I'm going to be taking us to Elkhart County, Indiana. You already are in Elkhart County, aren't you? No, I live in St. Joseph County, but Elkhart County is the next county over to the east. Oh, okay. So South Bend is like the the big city in St. Joe County, and then Elkhart is the big city in Elkhart County. Big city. Big city, yeah. Elkhart has, what, like 20,000 people? Oh, no, no. It's bigger than that. I I mean, it's like it's a legit, you know, there's like more than one Walmart, you know. Okay. It's a legit place. Population is 50,000, actually. Okay. So um, 52,000 estimated in 2019, according to Wikipedia. But uh, my story starts kind of in more of the rural Elkhart County. So Elkhart County, if you remember from uh, when we talked about 
Amish country. Mm-hmm. Elkhart County is one of the most concentrated Amish populations in the country. Now, we're not talking about the Amish community today, mm-hmm. but I say that just to kind of set the set the tone, set the tone a little bit, set kind of the rural scene. Today, we're going to be starting off kind of in the small town of Wakarusa, Indiana. Ooh. Yes, this is where uh, Murder Husband is from. Oh. It's a very, very, very small town. Mm-hmm. So Wakarusa is in Elkhart County, just south of Elkhart, which is obviously the central city. And it's just like a very idyllic little small town. Aww. We go down there a lot, obviously, because my in-laws are there. My husband describes it basically as just a, a lovely place to grow up, super tight-knit, population of 1,700, so really small. Yeah, I know. tiny. It's really small. Not a lot going on. I would imagine probably even less going on in the 80s and 90s, which is where (laughs) our case takes us today. Um, So very, very small. I would say it's probably about mm, 15 minutes south of Elkhart, the city, 15, 20 Mm -hmm. minutes. And so Elkhart in this region, like in the entire Michiana region, has kind of a reputation for being pretty sketchy, Mm -hmm. like more so than South Bend, just kind of... um, Kind of sketch. Violent. Well, kind of like violent, unsafe, a lot of drugs. It's, it's got a lot more poverty in general than South Bend does, for example. Less distribution of wealth, I would mm-hmm. say. Now, I do think that part of that is fed a, by a lot of stereotism. Yeah. Stereotism. Stereotyping. Stereotyping. Yes. Can you edit that back, please? Um, <laughs> a lot of stereotyping. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of stereotyping there. I think there's a lot of racism and a lot of xenophobia and just a lot of, you know, those issues that plague areas where the biggest city is 50,000 people, right? Like, that's kind of what you get. What is the kind of demographic makeup there? Wakarusa is definitely, like, about as white as its name. (laughs) (laughs) Elkhart itself is 66% white, 15.4% African-American, 22% Hispanic or Latino. Okay. Like a small amalgamation of mixed race, Asian, um, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So it's a pretty diverse town. But definitely a lot of poverty. Mm-hmm. So you kind of see that, like, there's Elkhart, and then you've got these, like, more idyllic kind of small towns mm-hmm. in the county, like Wakarusa, Goshen, which I love because they have a great pizza place, those types of places. Mm-hmm. So our victim today was a beautiful, beloved, vibrant teenage girl growing up in Wakarusa. Mm-hmm. Her name was Carrie Nunemaker. And she just seemed really lovely. She was born in 74. Mm-hmm to Ronald and Shirley Nunemaker. Those are her parents. She is described by her parents and friends and family as being really creative and fun-loving. One example I really loved that her mom, Shirley, talked about was that when Carrie was kind of a preteen, teen, like a young teenager, she like made her own fashion magazine. <laughs> That's cute. And put it together. Oh, I, I know, that. right? I love it. And then she sold it to her cousins. Oh <laughs> she made her own magazine. <laughs> I know. I love that. It sounds like something I would do. Yeah. Please tell me she uses little like fashion stencils oh, that you like drew the dresses over. I totally imagine it. She loved clothes and makeup mm-hmm. and like all that stuff. And the 80s obviously was a very fun time for those things. Oh, yes. So I imagine that her fashion magazine was like really awesome, <laughs> you know. So she just sounds like a really like vibrant, fun, adorable teenage girl. Oh. My husband described her as... Um, his friend's pretty older sister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can totally imagine her <laughs> so, husband saying that and just being... Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and she she really was just a lovely girl. Her family is definitely very kind of entrenched in their church mm-hmm. community. Um, Carrie was very active in the youth group. Uh, they went to Holdem and Mennonite Church, just very involved in that. And she was also a student at a Christian school in Goshen, which is like a city over, Bethany Christian High School. Mm -hmm. And so like later on when there were updates on the case and stuff like that, police would actually kind of do those from Bethany Christian, which I thought was really interesting. Like you don't usually see a school being where those things happen. That's where they would do news Mm -hmm. announcements or? Yeah. Yeah. That's where they would do it. So I thought that was just, it was interesting, but she was really loved there and she was really kind of a big part of you know, student life there. She played softball. She did a lot of theater. Like she was a really active kid and people just, you know, loved her, you know. So we're going to January 28th of 1991. Carrie had just turned 16. Her birthday is December 2nd. And so she's like literally been 16 for 
less than two Mm -hmm. months, on the evening of the 28th of January. She had just gotten her license, so she was very excited about that, obviously. Big deal. And so the 28th was one of her first forays, like driving herself outside of Wakarusa Mm -hmm. to go to Elkhart. So she was out to Elkhart with a couple of girlfriends, and they kind of started off their day by watching a boys' soccer game at the YMCA. The boys' soccer team from Bethany Christian was playing at the YMCA. There was, like, a lot of games that day, so they watched one game, it sounded like, and then took a pause, went over to the Concord Mall Mm -hmm. for some shopping and some goofy photos in the photo booth (laughs) Um, with her best friend, Beth Schwarzentuber. Actually, one of the detectives that was working on her case kept one of her photo booth photos on his desk uh, for the duration of their investigation because it just, it felt to him like it kind of represented her Mm -hmm. personality in many ways. They were also with Beth's brother, David Schwarzentuber, Mm -hmm. who uh, Carrie had kind of, wouldn't call him boyfriend, girlfriend, but from what I could see, there was kind of a vibe, you know what I mean? They were talking. Yes, as the kids would say now, they were talking. talking. I don't know what the kids said in 1991, Um, kids today would say they were talking. I was four, so I don't know, but... Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Were they going steady? Was Was that... No, that was more serious. Yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but uh, whatever it was, that's kind of where they were Mm -hmm. at. So they spent the time at the mall. That mall is sadly closed now. There's like a Hobby Lobby and then like a bunch of empty stuff (laughs) but it's kind of depressing so they went back over to the ymca to watch the next game uh david was playing so they kind of went to cheer him Mm -hmm. on and that game ended at about 9 p.m okay okay so after this the timeline is really 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 important so i'm going to be very detailed here about everything that we know about carrie's movements following that uh soccer game Okay. okay so beth had come to Elkhart in Carrie's car, which she had borrowed from her parents. But Beth wanted to go home a little bit earlier than the other kids did. So some of the other kids wanted to go out um, and get some food after the game, and Beth just didn't want to. Mm-hmm. So she would just she would tell Press later, like, I don't really know why. I just didn't really feel like staying out, basically. Yeah. So uh, she found herself another ride home. And basically the rest of the crew decided to go get some dinner at McDonald's. From what I gather, it was Carrie and David and then like kind of a random assortment of like a handful of other kids Mm -hmm. from the soccer game, you know. David had left his car. There's two McDonald's at play here. This is important. So (laughs) David had left his car at the McDonald's close to downtown Elkhart. Mm -hmm. And that McDonald's is on North Main Street. Mm -hmm. So Carrie drove um, David to go get his car from the north main street mcdonald's because that's not where they were going to eat okay that's just where david had left his car i presume because it was an easy walk to the ymca yeah to the soccer fields oh yeah that makes sense yeah and i drove this whole area like i drove every location and it was yes um so i think that's just kind of the logic of it they were gonna go and eat at a mcdonald's in this little area called dunlap Mm -hmm. which is a little bit south of elkhart Mm -hmm. it's not like its own town it's just kind of like it just wants to have its own name for whatever reason. I don't really understand Dunlap. But basically, you would take the same street, mm-hmm. North Main Street, down to get to the one in Dunlap. Mm-hmm. Basically, a straight line down Main Street. Um, the distance between them is a little bit less than four miles. It took me about 10 minutes with stoplights. Okay. You know, really short little track. Like country road, yeah. Well, no, it's all through Elkhart, the city. Oh, okay, okay. So it's actually, it's an urban drive for sure. I'm making assumptions here. Yeah, and you know what they say about those. So no, it's it's a drive through the city, okay. but basically a straight line. So they should have just been able to follow each other down there in their two different vehicles, David and Carrie. Problem was, and still is, one of the most annoying parts about driving through Elkhart is that there are a freaking lot of train tracks, <laughs> like a lot of them. It's a big train mm-hmm. town, a um, lot of industry. Crossroads of America. Yes, exactly. That's why they call us that. So basically, they got separated when David was stuck behind a train. Okay. And Carrie made it through the intersection. So their little caravan was separate after that. Now, when David arrived at the McDonald's, Carrie was not there. She was ahead of him. He got stuck behind the train. Mm -hmm. And she didn't get there. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I will say that when you get stuck behind a train in this area, it's not like a cute little Amtrak that's going to take two no. minutes. Like, these bad boys are carrying, like, freight. And you can be 10 minutes late to work because of getting stuck behind Oh, I think the longest I've been stuck behind a train is 35, 40 minutes. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say that would be, like, an everyday occurrence here, but... To get stuck behind for a good five, ten minutes, mm-hmm. that wouldn't surprise me at not all. Not odd at all. Yeah. So, um, you know, David was not alarmed, though, when he got to the McDonald's. He just thought she didn't want to wait for him mm-hmm. and that she just went home. So he was kind of like, well, I guess I'll just go home, too. That's kind of where David's night ended. Um, by midnight, Carrie hadn't made it home. Okay. And that was about the time when her parents kind of got a little bit worried. Yeah, yeah. Not crazy worried. We're still talking about a 16-year-old girl here um, going out for her first, like, foray to the city, you yeah. know. But they were concerned enough to call uh, Beth and David's parents and ask if Carrie was with them. Mm-hmm. And when they said no, they were like, okay, well, we'll wait it out a little bit longer. By 2.30 in the morning, that was just way too oh, late. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Way too late for comfort. So they went ahead and called the police at 2.30 a.m. Now, I will say that police took this case extremely seriously from the very, very beginning. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Um, I've got, like, a little bit of a big crush on the lieutenant on this case. Um, I won't tell murder husband. He'll never know. (laughs) He'll never know. He just did a really good job, okay? So, (laughs) and I like it when they do a good job. I do, too. Yeah. So, they took it really seriously, and actually, like, pretty much right away, they assigned four detectives uh, to look for Carrie. The lead detective on that task squad was lieutenant tom cutler so their first thought was okay she's a 16 year old she's just gotten her license she probably Mm -hmm. got into an accident yeah yeah that's exactly what i would think yeah right so they started to drive around kind of all the roads in elkhart and the surrounding area i will say like most places here in indiana between south bend and elkhart there's not a ton of countryside, like a little bit, but it's pretty mm-hmm. developed between the two. But once you start going east or north or south from Elkhart, mm-hmm. it's it's country pretty fast. Yeah. So they're driving like kind of county roads and things like that, looking in ditches, looking in fields, looking in patches of trees. I've driven through that area late at night and it can get kind of hard to drive in because it's so dark. Yes. And I mm-hmm. imagine in... Yes. 1992 it was even darker yeah and winter too and winter so yeah it that could easily you could easily drive off the road there's Mm -hmm. black ice or your semi-trucks are terrifying yes they are so yeah so there's a lot of reasons to suspect that she probably got into a car accident Mm -hmm. so they were really like focusing that search on roadsides ditches um like i said fields you know places where somebody could run off the road Mm-hmm. Um, overpasses, underpasses, all the passes. Um, <laughs> and uh, they were looking for a maroon Chevy celebrity. It was a 1982 maroon Chevy celebrity. And in that initial search, they unfortunately did not find anything. Are you looking up what that would have looked like? Yes, because I have no idea what a Chevy celebrity is. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. It looks like a pretty typical like 80s sedan-style car. Yeah. Very nondescript. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. Like, it's a family car. Like, she borrowed her parents' car, basically. So, yeah, just picture, like, kind of a a really old school sedan, um, if you don't feel like Googling that. Very boxy. Lots of angles. I feel like you don't see a lot of maroon cars anymore. So, I kind of, like, love the fact that it was maroon. (laughs) Because that kind of feels, like, very of its time to me, you know. My first car was maroon, and it was a 1991 Tempo, so... Oh, that's the kind of car I learned how to drive in, but ours was blue. Oh. Yeah, a 91 Tempo. Dolores. Good car. Dimitri was not a good car. No. At Dimitri all. didn't no. even make it to college, did he? You had your second No, one he did then. not. He yeah. uh, crapped out in Crittersville, Ohio on my <laughs> way to orientation. Oh my gosh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And then you got your little neon, and that little guy was loyal till the very end. To the very, very end. That was such a good car. We all cried when that one got away. We did. It even tried to set my ex on fire, which was great. Uh, (laughs) Well-deserved. 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 Anyway, back to the story. Yes. So, you know, not finding anything on that roadside search is basically when they realized Mm -hmm. that they were looking for something more insidious than an accident. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, you've got kind of two avenues at that point, either foul play or runaway. Yeah. Nothing about Carrie suggested runaway to anybody. Doesn't seem like it, yeah. So basically kind of the undercurrent was that something happened to her, something bad had happened. Did the Um, police go immediately with that? Because like we've seen before with similar age, 16, 17-year-old girls, mm -hmm. even if family and friends are being like, there's no way, there's no way, police will still kind of go with the runaway theory. They did Did not. They did not. They did not. They did not. They didn't drop the term foul play right away. Okay. But it was clear to me the way that they were handling media coverage, the way that things were written up in the papers, the tone of those announcements and and press conferences and things like it was the tone was very much like something happened here now we're looking for a runaway so good good uh, so they were taking it very seriously and as such basically had to turn to local media pretty much right away to spread Mm -hmm. news of her disappearance and her family the Nunamaker family at the same time uh, were creating their own flyers and doing their own kind of door-to-door knocking and posting up flyers and stuff Mm mm-hmm all over both Wakarusa and Elkhart. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So they really were pounding the pavement, trying to find some answers. So police didn't go to missing posters right away, but they did put articles in the paper. Looking at the papers from those days, like it was definitely like in the South Bend Tribune, which would be the paper mm-hmm. that would serve serves our whole region here. Mm-hmm. Uh, front page above the fold, yeah. big picture, very much like present, not buried you yeah. know, on page C37, it was like, <laughs> it was the news mm-hmm. for that week. So because of that, some pieces and little tips did start to trickle in. Okay. And that would really help to kind of build some of our next run of events here. So right. the first kind of tip that came in was from a woman named Lisa Dempsey. And she had seen Carrie's story in the paper, as well as a description of the car, the celebrity. Mm-hmm. And she told police that at around 5.30 in the morning on January 29th, she saw a car stopped in the road near Bonneville Mill County Park. That is outside of Bristol, Indiana, mm-hmm. which is about 12 miles east of downtown Elkhart, where Carrie was last seen. Mm-hmm. So the car was stopped in the road on County Road 131. And Bonneville Mill County Park is like it's a fairly sizable county park. It's definitely like a... A nature park more than like a cutesy bootsy kids park, you know? Yeah. So it's very rural, very dark down there. She was driving home from work just across the state line in Michigan. So she was Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, out coming off of a third shift kind of job. Yep. So like I said, it's about 12 miles to the east of Elkhart. And Linda couldn't be totally sure that it was the same car. She was showing pictures of it. um, But she said it could have been the same one. Okay. Okay. So couching it, enough. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. She said that the car was on, the lights were on, and the windshield wipers were on, but she did not actually see anybody in or near the vehicle. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that was kind of the first piece of news that would come in. And then not long after that, another witness, Barbara Rensberger, came forward, and she said that she was stuck at a train, because it's Elkhart. Mm Mm-hmm. In Elkhart, a little after 9, which lines up with when we know that Carrie had left the YMCA, or left the McDonald's parking lot, Mm -hmm. and at the train stop, she saw a a similar car to Carrie's. Again, no one's going to say, it's the car, it's the car. Yeah. But a similar car to Carrie's with a teenage girl inside, being approached by uh, who she described to be a light-skinned black male. Now, the driver of the car opened the door to speak with the man. Why that is significant, because I can see your little crinkly eyebrows. Yeah, because I'm like, why? What? The window crank was broken mm-hmm. in Carrie's car. Oh. So that is why the tip was so crucial. Got because it. that matches. You'd have to open the car door to speak with somebody on the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is what Barbara Rensberger observed from this vehicle. Got it. Okay. So she saw the door close, but did not see anybody enter or exit the car. Okay. So that, again, was a little bit after 9 o'clock. So that is where – so we got those two kind of crucial tips, help to maybe place the car in a couple of different areas. To get some little tinges of a timeline and – Yeah. Yeah. It's not a ton, but it's something, right? Mm -hmm. 
those two tips came in and they were kind of the last ones to be super significant until another two days passed and the car itself was found. Mm -hmm. So the car was found behind a house at 1527 Morton Avenue in Elkhart. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine it looks different then than it does now. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to describe what I saw when I drove through it. Sketchy neighborhood for sure. Okay. The house butts up to an alley like many houses around here do, like mine does. And there's like a large, larger than normal parking area behind the house. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that it was there also in 91. Mm -hmm. It didn't look like a newly paved situation. So obviously like a very large space to put cars. Now this house is less than a mile from the railroad tracks. Mm -hmm. And inside the vehicle, detectives made one really grim discovery. And that was a wad of blonde hair wrapped around the gear shift. And it was, I mean, it was a lot of hair. Yeah. When I say a wad, I mean, it was like kind of like a handful of hair wrapped around the gear shift. And if you can imagine those like older cars, like now we're used to the gear shift being like between us in the center Mm -hmm. console. Back in those days, your gear shift was like on your steering wheel. Yeah, right below the little turn signal. You mm-hmm. had to like hand, like underarm crank it. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. picturing that, you can imagine that this was not exactly a natural spot to find a wad of hair. No, not at all. And again, a wad, not like I lost a couple of hairs or I pulled out a ponytail holder and I lost five or six. It was a lot of hair. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the implication is that somehow her head was pushed down in such a way to cause her hair to tangle around the gear shift. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Okay. Now, that was kind of it as far as what was in the car. No blood mm-hmm. in the vehicle, no sign of Carrie, no fingerprints lifted. So the cops had to then just kind of canvas the neighborhood, kind of figure out, like, do you know who left this car here, who lives in this house, yada, yada, right? They only really got one key useful piece of information. Mm-hmm. On the 29th of January... A young girl living nearby observed two individuals exit the car. Okay. She was not able to say anything more about who those people might have been. Yeah, yeah. No description. Not even really like a very accurate time. She just knows that she saw two people get out of that car. Okay. That was kind of it. After that, the finding of the car, things again kind of dried up until about 9.40 a.m. on February 5th. Remember that Carrie was last seen on January 28th. So okay. now we're on February 5th. So a full week has passed. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Dwight Miller was driving his milk truck up County Road 131, which runs alongside Bonneville Mill Park. So he would actually later tell the Goshen News that everybody in the trucker community locally was looking for Carrie. Oh, wow. Yeah. That they had like kind of amongst themselves kind of made like a an unofficial sort of pact basically mm-hmm. to just keep an eye out for her. And he had actually picked up milk from farms owned by Carrie's uncle and grandfather. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So he knew the family um, and would know Carrie if he saw her, like knew her vaguely enough that he would recognize her um, Mm -hmm. if he were to see her. Now, unfortunately, he saw just that. About 60 feet off the road near a parking area at the park, Miller saw Carrie's nude body in the snow. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he ran from his truck, yelling her name and tromping through some of the marshland that kind of butts up between the road and the area that she was found in. But when he got close enough to see that she was clearly deceased, he ran back to his truck, hopped Mm -hmm. back in, and went to the closest home he could find. It's 91. Cell phones were not a thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he went to the closest house that he could find and knocked on the door and told the owner, and this was directly what he said he told to the owner, I have an emergency and need to use the phone. I found Carrie Nunemaker's body. Wow. Yeah. So uh, this is the part where I'm going to put up like a slight content warning because I'm about to talk about her autopsy. Mm-hmm. So if you need to skip ahead a couple minutes to get through this part with some physical detail, by all means, go ahead. There will be a pretty vivid description of some sexual assault that took place. So jump forward about a minute. I'm mm-hmm. going to give it. Yeah, a minute or two. So Carrie had gone through an immense horror prior to being left at Bonneville Mill. 
Mm-hmm. Her autopsy was performed by Dr. Rick Hoover of the South Bend Medical Foundation. And it was noted that Carrie's body had undergone uh, first prolonged exposure to the cold weather. Jeez. Yeah, suggesting that her body was left there not too long after her disappearance. Mm-hmm. So she was there for probably most of that week. There was what was described as a blunt trauma injury to her head, but not a fatal injury. Instead, as far as what could have caused her death more directly, there were no marks left on her neck, observable to the eye, but there was petechial hemorrhaging in and around her eyes, Mm -hmm. which suggested asphyxiation as the cause of her death. So Dr. Hoover listed the primary cause of her death as asphyxia due to cervical compression, Mm-hmm. But he listed a secondary cause of death, which was the injuries to her vagina and the region. Oh, Jesus. Yes. Uh, those injuries were intense and severe. Some of the injuries he observed uh, to her vagina were in early stages of healing. Oh, no. Yeah. Which suggests that her abuse was committed repeatedly and violently over between a 6- and 12-hour period of time. There was also evidence to show that she had been bound at least at the ankles. Mm-hmm. So she went through something extremely, extremely horrifying. Yeah, Jesus. A rape kit was taken, and the presence of sperm was found. Okay. So given technology limitations at the time, not a whole lot could be done with it. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was kind of an interesting decision made. So... There was a limited amount of it, and obviously some technological limitations as well. Mary Reed, who was a pathologist with the Indiana State Police, basically had to make a decision. Now, extracting enough DNA from the sample to attempt to create a profile would have destroyed the sample entirely. But she knew that there was enough technology on the horizon that Mm -hmm. she felt like it was smarter to hold on to the sample and wait for better processes to come available. Okay. Smart. Really smart. A respectable decision, I think. I'd imagine that probably a polarizing decision at the time, because some people probably would have been like, just get the, get the profile, get the profile, get the profile. But we're so close to DNA testing. Yeah. Yeah, we're so close. And she knew that. She's a scientist in the field, you know? Mm-hmm. So You keep up on your journals. Yeah. yeah, you do. So even though that was kind of a blow to some of the investigative team, the police still had some ideas okay. about who to, to take a look at. Now, you suggested the very first one, right? Yeah. The natural first person to look at was David Schwarzenegger. Yeah. He was questioned, polygraphed, interrogated, essentially, and ruled out as a result of that process. Yeah, figured. He got home when he said he did. Nothing suspicious about his movements. He was acting, you know, quote-unquote appropriately during all the interviews. Passed the polygraph. They cleared Mm -hmm. David. There was also another unnamed early suspect that was quickly cleared as well. Okay. So those were their first two. Now, the third one is where things get a little bit more interesting. All right. Give it to me. So the third potential suspect was this area known rapist in Elkhart named Fred Mott. So Mott was living in Elkhart. He was currently out on parole. At the time of Carrie's murder, he had been paroled in 1989, mm-hmm. having been convicted on charges of armed rape and deviant criminal conduct. Okay. He served mm-hmm. half of a 24-year sentence before parole. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Things are not looking good for this guy in my mind. Mm-mm. They are not. They are not. So uh, he's obviously known to police. Mm-hmm. He's a known entity. He is a parolee in the area. So police went to track him down at his apartment, which was uh, some government housing at 422 State Street in Elkhart. Mm-hmm. And Fred Mott was nowhere to be found. However, there were some neighbors who stated hearing and seeing some suspicious things at around the time of Carrie's murder. Robert Cogain and Rita Snyder lived right above Mott. It's like a, um, I would say it's kind of like a, Maybe a sixplex. Like, from what I can tell, it probably had like maybe six or nine apartments. One, two, three, one, two, three. But I couldn't tell okay. how deep it went. So, like a smaller building. Now, Robert Cogain and Rita Snyder lived above Mott, like I said. Mm-hmm. And sometime in late January, they couldn't pinpoint the exact day, 
they heard what they thought was a violent altercation happening in Mott's apartment. Oh, damn. Yeah. So they reported hearing a woman screaming for about 30 to 45 minutes. What? Yeah. Now, Snyder was able to convince Cogain to go down there and check it out. So he did. But by the time he got to Mott's door, it was silent. So he starts banging on the door and yelling, is everything okay in there? Is everything okay? After 30 to 45 minutes. Yeah, I know. I know. Guys. Okay. This feels like a conversation about bystander effect. Mm -hmm. A little bit. So Mott cracked the door open a little bit, peeked out, Mm -hmm. and said, she's fine. And closed the door again. The fuck? Yeah. No. So Kogan returned to the apartment, but he and Snyder decided to keep their eyes peeled and keep an eye on the windows, keep their ear to the floor to see what else they could hear. Did these two know that he was, that he had a history of sexual violence? I don't think so. I couldn't find anything to suggest that they knew that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to think that if they knew that, they probably would have called the police. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I think sometimes, like, especially with apartment living, like, you kind of just, A, you assume somebody else is going to call, or B, that's not my business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard call. Like, in my last apartment, I overheard what was obviously a domestic mm-hmm. situation taking place. I called, and my downstairs neighbor called. Police did show up. Mm-hmm. But I did kind of debate, like... Uh, do I call do I not call I'm not sure what I heard you know whatever luckily Dottie downstairs always calls so (laughs) (laughs) nothing happens on Dottie's watch thanks Dottie yeah I miss her she was so great the neighborhood needs one of those people yes yes she is such an angel but there was no Dottie in this apartment there's not there's not and again like you know and I I don't want to stereotype the area by any means but you have to wonder too like if you're calling police if, if somebody else was on parole, if, you know, there were drugs in the apartment, like, whatever. Like, you don't want to draw attention yeah. to yourself either, you know. Yeah. Logically, I don't think that police would care in the face of such a big case. But, you know, that might not be what you're thinking if you're thinking, oh, shoot, I have pot in here or whatever. So, Well, and I hardly doubt they're connecting this to that big case. Because what mm-hmm. was it? When did they hear it? The night of the disappearance? or Thereabouts. Yeah, late okay. January was what they said. Yeah. So um, about 10 or 15 minutes after Kogain came back upstairs, they saw Mott carrying a large object rolled up in a blanket or a carpet. Come on, guys. Mm-hmm. Which was placed in the back of a maroon vehicle. Guys. Mm-hmm. Once they saw him leave, they went back to the apartment and knocked again, hoping that the woman would answer. It was silent. And Rita Snyder just kind of felt it in her gut. She described that later, that she had just watched Fred Mott carry a body out of that apartment. Yeah, I'm like grinding my teeth right now because I'm Mm -hmm. like, what do you think you just saw? I know, I know. (sighs) The other thing that'll make you keep grinding your teeth is that to that apartment, Mott never returned. When he left with that rolled up blanket, he never came back. Did... They ever call the police to the apartment? Because I'm wondering, of like, if they called the police, then could the police have gotten in, gotten blood evidence, gotten something? Mm-mm. No, from from every document that I read, they didn't tell that tale until police came to the apartments looking for Mott and started knocking on doors. Mm-mm. I'm so mad right now. I know it hurts. It hurts. It's hard. It's just so with witnesses, like it's so hard to like you don't want to judge, but at the same time, it's like, dude. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you think you saw make an anonymous call if you don't want it to be you you know if you're saying like in my gut i know what i just saw now like then mm-hmm. <sighs> then you use that gut and you call the police yeah use uh, your gut guys yeah but you know again like it's hard to judge i don't know mm, i know um i'm angry too obviously <laughs> obviously so uh fred mott it didn't take that long to track him down thank goodness uh, he was tracked down over the summer. Mm-hmm. I guess it took several months, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, not that long. They got him. That's what's important. Yeah. He was in San Francisco. What? California. Mm-hmm. He had a brother out there. Okay. And he had also attempted to take out a personal loan to help 
him like get on his feet in California. So they were able to find him, you know, within that first six months or so of 1991. Indiana authorities obviously had him sent back because taking a road trip from Indiana to California while you were on parole is a big old violation. Not on parole, boy. Mm -hmm. No purse, no purse, no purse. So he obviously was sent back to Indiana Mm -hmm. and he was sent back to serve on the violation of the parole at Westville Correctional Facility, which is a large prison in Westville, Indiana. Okay. Not too far from where I currently reside. (laughs) Actually, my ex-husband used to teach some classes there. Ah, nice. Yeah. So um, now Fred Mott's an interesting dude. Okay. So in July and August of 91, so he's back in lockup. He's at Westville. Uh, Westville's not like a very friendly place. He made some odd moves. Mm -hmm. He started to write some letters. And he wrote letters to several local news agencies. And the content of those letters was very strange, to my mind. He wrote in those letters that Elkhart police had made a request to the prison for a sample of his blood, which prison officials gave to the Elkhart police in April of that year. He also stated that when questioned by authorities, they told him that they liked him for this because he had, quote, done things like this before. He also claimed that police obtained a warrant to search his ex-girlfriend's apartment to basically hunt for his hair. He felt like he was a, quote, sacrificial goat and that he was being framed for something that he did not do. Question mark. Most of that stuff, yes, is part of an investigation. Mm. The problem was, as Tom Cutler would come back and say very succinctly, Basically, what Tom Cutler said was, why would I ask prison officials for this when I've been trying to go through the courts, a.k.a. the right way? Yeah. For a warrant for those samples. You don't just call up and be like, hey, bros, can you um, like extract some blood from this guy? You know? Yeah. 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 Okay. So so he's accusing that they did that all without warrants. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, and it was just kind I of see. like under the table, like gentleman to gentleman kind of situation. I mean, technically, if they wanted to go to the girlfriend's house and she allowed it, that's what they can do. Right. Yeah. But Tom Cutler said they didn't do any of those things. Okay. Any of those things. All right. Well, Mr. Cutler, what's the truth? What is the truth? Well, here it was. Okay. Basically, he said very flatly that there was absolutely no acquisition of Fred Mott's DNA via either of those channels. Okay. Cutler was in a bind of his own, though, when it came to Fred Mott's DNA. Mm -hmm. So on July 12th, the court in LaPorte County, which is where Westville is, so you're two counties over now, authorized his request for a search warrant for DNA samples to be procured from Mott while in prison. Okay. So now we're going through the proper channels. We are. He always was. Now, Westville officials at the prison, however, refused to obtain the samples for him. And they pushed back and said that the Elkhart authorities authorities needed to come and do it themselves. So y'all come get this blood if you want it. Okay. Now, that was totally fine by Cutler. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a dick move. A little bit. But what Cutler wanted was an official stipulation in that warrant that it was okay for Elkhart police to potentially restrain Fred Mott in order to get that sample, a.k.a. that it did not have to be voluntarily or easily given. Yikes. So there was a lot of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth about that, which is basically mm-hmm. how Tom Cutler was able to say, like, I'm caught up in this legal fight right now. I don't have the time or ability or, frankly, like, the lack of scruples to ask for this to happen, like, outside of the process. Yeah. Under the table. Like, why would I be fighting this big fight if I could just go ahead and do it under the yeah, table, at, like you accused? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, those samples eventually were taken. They were mm-hmm. able to figure it out. But for whatever reason, in the immediate aftermath, nothing was able to be done with those samples. And 1991 for- just closed out without any conclusive result. Like legal loopholes or what? I think a little bit of legal loopholes, a little bit of technology deficiency. Some of the subtext I read suggested that the ISP, the Indiana State Police, kind of was not so great with DNA at the time. 
Well, we're in 1991, you mm-hmm. said, right? So DNA is not... It's a baby science. Easy. Yeah. It's a baby science. It's really hard. It wasn't until, what, 1996 that it actually became much more, like, publicly utilized? Yeah, where it could be, like, rely- reliably used. And- In 1991, people didn't even understand what DNA was, yeah. honestly. And, like, it was possible. Like, we know the first conviction happened via DNA evidence in 86, but the mm-hmm. amount of DNA that you would need in 91 mm-hmm. in your average lab in Indiana, it's going to be a lot of blood. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're going to need yeah. a lot of it. Whereas now you can do DNA analysis with a droplet. You know, that wasn't the case yeah. in 91. So so 91 came and ended without a, a conclusion, basically, for this ah. case. 92, much the same way. Ah. It came and went. Now, Carrie Nunemaker's case would stay in the news, and Fred Mott would as well for the next few years, especially around the anniversaries. So Fred Mott is just sitting in jail now, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. Yep, he's just kind of sitting. Just chilling. Yep, serving time for that parole violation. All the while, the Carrie Nunemaker case went cold. And that was not due to any lack of effort on behalf of her family or her parents, Shirley and Ron. They held regular press conferences. They put up a $10,000 reward for information. Mm-hmm. They stayed in the paper. I spent a lot of time, like, I just wanted to see, like, how many articles per year could I find about Carrie Nunemaker kind yeah. of through the 90s. And it went dry by 97. Oh, wow. But for 91, 92, 93, 94, there were That's still a articles. a long time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there were still articles. By 93, there was only one detective still assigned to the case. What that guy had to work with was an 800-page file gathered. Jesus. Yeah. By 94, the case could be considered a cold case. But it's frustrating because it sounds like they have their guy in jail. Mm, That's what it feels like. They're just stuck. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All I have for you are noises. I know. I know. That's going to sound really sexy coming through people's car radios. (laughs) (laughs) It's not your vehicle. (laughs) Your transmission's okay. Your transmission is fine. I'm just angry. Exactly. So uh, 94, it's a cold case. 96. Now, what I think is really interesting about this is the community really latched on to Fred Mott as a suspect. So. Even though the case was cold, every time something happened with Fred Mott, it was in the South Bend and the Elkhart and the Goshen papers. So in 1996, Fred Mott was charged in California for an attack that had actually been committed very, very soon after Carrie's murder. Here's what happened in that attack. On March 3rd, 91, basically a month Mm -hmm. later, month and a handful of days, Mott kidnapped a student at UC Berkeley held her in a university building for several hours and committed an extremely violent assault on her. Oh, my God. Yeah. The charges that would arise as a result of this case are stunning. The woman survived. But, yeah, survived that ordeal. The stipulations around the crime, which included an intention to cause great bodily harm, meant that in California, a conviction on those charges would be an automatic life sentence. That's how bad it was. Because of the severity of the crime, California wanted to extradite him and try him in California. Yeah, because in Indiana, he's just sitting on a probation violation. yeah. Or parole violation, Mm -hmm. yeah. And by this time, he was not even considered to be an active subject or active suspect by Indiana authorities. So he really is just Mm -hmm. in jail. So even though locals were keeping an eye on his movements and local journalists had like really latched on to him as a person, California was, you know, free and clear to to get him shipped out there and for yeah. him to stand trial there. So what was interesting is that Tom Cutler had to fly out too because the California case hinged on the DNA that Cutler had gotten via that warrant. Ah, okay. So with that DNA, and Tom Cutler, you know, had to testify as to, you know, how it was procured and and why and all that stuff, Mott was found guilty and received that life sentence with no possibility of parole. Okay. So, you know, for some, you know, when we ask this question a lot, like, what is justice, right? 
for some people who believed Mott to be the guy, that was also justice for Carrie, even though it wasn't mm-hmm. her case. It's this guy mm-hmm. is locked up forever. He is not getting out. Yeah. There's no more danger of him, you know, existing. Yeah. But it's not Carrie's case. It's not Carrie's case. And I feel like it always just until you have that rock solid answer, Mm -hmm. you're always going to have doubts. And at least for me and for my mind, I need to have those doubts set aside with a conviction. Yes. So, you know, like I said, like, basic like anytime anything happened with Fred Mott he was on the South Bend area papers and so like this happened and there was all this flurry of information about it and then that would mean a flurry of information kind of like you know putting back into people's heads what happened with Carrie there's a big rise and a big fall right as mm-hmm. news of that conviction came and went and that was 98 so it would be several okay. more years before any other crucial changes would happen in this investigation oh wow yeah in 2004 Another really big thing happened. So a cold case expert from the Indiana State Police was assigned to take another look at Karen Unimaker's case. This guy's name is Thomas Littlefield, and he's awesome. He's got many cold cases under his belt. He's a successful guy. We like him. I want to be a cold case investigator. Can I leave my job and become a cold case investigator? Yes. Yes. I think think we would be good at it. And I mean, it's never too late for a career change. So uh, Thomas Littlefield, like I said, very smart guy. Uh, He came in to look at everything. And after all that time, it still looked to him like every single red flag, every neon sign was pointing in the direction of Fred Mott. Yeah. If you're about to tell me it wasn't Fred Mott, I'm going to like, I don't know. I have a lot of emotional investment in Fred Mott being guilty. Yeah, are you about to like turn over a table if I tell you it's not Fred Mott? No, because I have sangria on this table. Ah, well, precious, precious sangria. (laughs) (laughs) What's alcohol like? I did do a bad thing and I ate some soft cheese today, but I couldn't stop myself. We're not supposed to eat soft cheese. I know. But I did it. I still did it. But Brie, man, Brie is life. And it was it was Brie, and it was delicious. And I'm pretty sure the baby's Brie. okay because she's still vibing in there. So I knew it was Brie. It's always Brie. It's always Brie. Brie's going to be what takes me down. So Littlefield's first step was to confirm other circumstantial evidence, basically, mm-hmm. to do that first. Basically, re-interview people, uh, confirm some of those connections, and solidify as much of that timeline as he could to trace mm-hmm. Mott's movements, you know, as easily as Carrie's could be traced at least that day. Yes. So... One really important thing that was found was that Mott was connected to the house on Morton Avenue where Carrie's car was found. Yeah, okay. He had actually recently helped some friends move out of that house. Mm -hmm. So he had a connection to it. People living there at the time that had like the new occupants were not his friends, but he had helped people move out of that house recently before the car was found there. So... Between that and the story from Cogain and Snyder and what they saw and heard that day, Littlefield's next step came back right down to that crucial, crucial stuff. More blood from Fred Mott. That's right, more blood. Mm-hmm. So another sample of Mott's blood was taken in 2005. And Littlefield made the very good call that instead of sending it to the state lab, he would send it to a private lab called Relegain. So I'm going to get sciencey for a second here because I think this yes. is interesting. Relegain basically had four things to work with when they, you know, analyzed the situation. They had a control sample of Carrie's blood. Mm-hmm. They had Fred Mott's blood. Mm-hmm. They had vaginal epithelial cells mm-hmm. and sperm extracted from said cells. Got it. So if you don't know, epithelial cells are basically cells that coat like your entire being inside mm-hmm. and out. Uh, they're the first thing on you that comes into contact with anything from the outside. Yep. If you brush up against a door, guess what? You're yep. losing epithelial, epithelial cells, cells on there. Off they go. I kind of pictured it like if you're looking at a coloring book, epithelial mm-hmm. cells are the black lines around your image. Oh, okay. Yeah. Teach your brain. needs to come up with metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's what they had to work with. That's a, a lot of really good rich material. Yes. Finally. And, mm-hmm. and now it's 2005, so enough time has passed that science is, you know, much more advanced than it was before. Mm-hmm. Finally, Fred Mott's blood was a match to yes, the sperm. Yes, 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 yes. Finally. 
I mean, we always knew, but yes, still. But finally. But what does a match mean? That he was there, not that he killed her? Well, that's what it can mean. That's not what happened at trial. Okay, thank God. <laughs> but that terminology of a match came under fire at trial. Obviously, this is enough to take Fred Mott to trial for this case, okay? Now, the pathologist from Relegain, who examined and, you know, ran the results and examined all the, the samples, she was asked if the samples were the same, as in from the same source. She said, and this is the quote from the court transcript, yes, the sample obtained from the sperm fraction was consistent with Fred Mott's DNA sample. So, therefore, Fred Mott is not excluded as a DNA donor from this sperm fraction. <sighs> mm-hmm. I'm mad because I know what that science language means, and I think that most of the true crime community does mm-hmm. too, yes. but that doesn't mean that everybody does. Right, right. And the defense knows that. Mm-hmm. So uh, the defense challenges that terminology exactly, and they challenge the term not excluded. Yeah. Right, as the donor of that DNA. So she was forced to explain further. Basically, you can have... A lack of match, and you're just out mm-hmm. of luck. You can have a single match, as in it's perfect. Yep. And the odds exceed one in five point nine trillion mm-hmm. uh, that that's not a match. Isn't that cool? Yeah, right. It is really cool. Or, and most often, you have a match that cannot be excluded. Mm-hmm. A partial match, or mm-hmm. a match that it, instead of one in a trillion, it's one in five hundred million. Exactly. So that forced her to basically crunch the numbers for this case uh, and to provide for the jury what the exact probability would have been for Mm -hmm. Fred Mott to not be the carrier of that firm. So the probability of someone being a match, of somebody else being a match, I should say, was 1 in 862,000 for a person of Caucasian descent and 1 in 546,000 for somebody of African-American descent, which Fred Mott is. So, one in 546,000, those are still some uh, pretty darn good odds that mm-hmm. that came from Fred Mott. But that's enough to be a little bit like, you know, potentially scary for a jury to hear, maybe. So, Prosecutor Curtis Hill, who we also love, fired back in his closing argument. And he says, you know, the defense would have you think that a match can't be a match if it isn't absolutely perfect. But from an evidentiary and science standpoint, this is as perfect as science can allow you to get, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you have to look at it in combination with everything else. The testimony from Cogain and Snyder, the sightings of Carrie or Carrie's vehicle with a man matching Ma's description, the connection to the Morton Street address, the fleeing to California, and finally, 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 that DNA to seal the deal. Mm-hmm. Now, that was all the material that the jury had to take a look at. Yeah. And they came back in less than two hours with what seemed to be an easy call, finding Fred Mott guilty in Carrie Nunemaker's murder. Good. Yes. I was, I was really, like, bracing myself for you to say that they found him not guilty. I know, I know. Um, so he was found guilty. He was sentenced to 60 years to life, which was to be served consecutively with his mm-hmm. sentence in California, which is obviously a life sentence. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's not going anywhere. Fred Mott is currently 72 years old. He is in prison in Los Angeles County, California. If you're Googling him. I am. You know I am. He's, he's definitely creepy looking. For Fred sure. Mott. Ew, I hate him. Yeah. Yeah, he's really gross. Uh. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the response from Carrie's family. Obviously, this was a long haul, 14 years mm-hmm. from her disappearance to finally having a conviction in this case. What stood out to me the most about what her mom especially said to the press in the process of the trial and after the conviction was that thing that meant the most to her was finally knowing what really happened. It wasn't necessarily tossing around the word closure because, you know, does that really even exist? But it was the information Shirley finally could put to rest the questions about what happened to her daughter 
Mm-hmm. She knew. She had to go through it at trial. She saw it all. But no more questions. And now they can finally just grieve it. God. Yeah. yeah. That has to be such a hard thing to grieve. But just having those answers and just having that information. Like like you said, there's no closure in something like this. But Yeah. But... Uh, I think you can start to make, you know, a gesture towards whatever closure might mean to you once mm-hmm. you have that information, you know. This guy is the definition of dead behind the eyes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just nothing. Yes. yes. Um, if you look into details about what happened in the California case, it's kind of a miracle that that woman survived it. Yeah. The charges in that suggest a assault similar in brutality to what Carrie went through as well. Mm-hmm. so miraculous that she survived it mm-hmm. absolutely miraculous that she survived it god so that is my case this week that is carrie nunamaker i'm glad that that horrible horrible person is behind bars for life me too me too and i'm glad to give voice to a case that i think in many ways has kind of been forgotten to time you know yeah. but you know apart from being kind of an important local case also a really interesting one from a scientific standpoint as well to think about mm-hmm. just the the evolution in dna like we yeah. had the guy the whole time but couldn't really do anything with it until the technology kind of caught up you know what i mean and just the patience of the scientists the yes. patience of those investigators to know like we can't rush this like i know we don't have it now but we're gonna have it yeah exactly and we and when we do it we want to get it right yeah, you yeah. Know. And I think it it takes a lot to have that, especially in a case like this where it seems like it's very easy to get emotional about it and to, like, you know, want to get your pitchforks out and whatever. Mm-hmm. But to have that objective perspective, that's just yeah. like, no, we got to wait. We have to do this right. Yeah. I mean, locally, it was super high profile. And I really mm-hmm. just applaud Tom Cutler's patience and mm-hmm. those pathologists' patience with you know how to kind of handle all that like you know he had to have his dna used in the california case before it could even be used for his case you know like could you imagine some of the professional frustration yeah involved in that but i mean at least then you feel like okay even if this case doesn't get doesn't get it what i did did something what i worked for accomplished something exactly between him and Thomas Littlefield, there was no letting this case go. Like, yeah, it did go cold for, you know, 10 years or so, but it was never going to go totally cold. I don't believe it was ever going to go totally cold mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because there was so much investment. Jeez. Yeah. So there you have it. Well, yeah, I'm angry. Good. Very good. That's what I was aiming for. <laughs> Do you want to use that anger and tell us about next week a little bit? Uh, I do. So uh, we've got a, just a heads up. Next week's going to be a little bit tough. Okay. We're going to do another kind of family annihilation case. Oh, we are? Yeah. So I changed the order. Oh, okay. I was like, I don't feel like I remember that on the on the uh, track sheet, dude. No, because I had Leslie Irvin and I just wanted to move it around. Okay. So uh, yeah, next week we're going to do a really, really tragic family annihilation case we've been in the great lakes region for quite a while Mm -hmm. so we are going to shift our lake focus and head over to st paul minnesota ah okay it's been a while since we've been there not since weepy i don't think hang hangley oh hangley okay yeah yeah so back to st paul Mm -hmm. and it's a rough one guys just heads up okay i'll heads up for myself too yeah there's kids Mm, that's hard that's hard well if that's your jam come back for that people i mean <laughs> you're true crime people so you got this far you may as well just come back next week yeah right? exactly so we're going to talk about mental illness and trauma and family annihilation so well it sounds like a fruitful conversation and i'll be here whether you like it or not that's right <laughs> i'll be here we'll both be here whether we like it or not but we like it obviously because we keep doing it oh i have to tell you this and maybe i'll cut this maybe i won't i don't know i attempted to do so on facebook you know you do can do those little boosts mm-hmm. so for any of our listeners there's a little button and it has, says boost and then it like shows our little like facebook post to more people so mm-hmm. that you know more people see us and listen and who knows mm-hmm. like us 
So I attempted to do that for the Kelly Stowe case. Mm. And I got zucked. You had zucked? Really? Yeah. It was rejected. Wow. Because it, oh God, I, I can't remember. I can look at like exactly what the wording was because I took a screenshot of it on my phone. Hmm. But it was like, you cannot post this because it is related to important political matters that could influence people's voting and something, something. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Like I've had boosts before get blocked or get rejected because I forgot to say like, listen on your favorite podcast app or um, like whatever it is that signals to people that like there's something to do, you know? Yeah. Um, And you're not, you can't just boost content. There has to be like a directive, you know, like listen or purchase or whatever. So I've had them reject for that reason, but I can't believe you, you got sucked. Yeah, it's about sensitive social issues that could influence public opinion, how people vote, and may impact the outcome of an election or pending legislation. Wow, that makes us sound very powerful. Yeah, who knew we are that powerful? Anyway, so I'm not allowed to advertise that one beyond our our cute little group. So, you know, you guys can go ahead and share it. I feel emboldened now that Zuck thinks we're that powerful that we could sway a political election. (laughs) By talking about, you know, a systemic issue. Right. Yeah. Gross. Okay. Anyway, I wanted to tell you that. I've been wanting to tell you that for a few weeks and I keep forgetting about it. Oh, was that the thing you wanted me to hang on to tell me? Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, (laughs) Well, we're not going to stop talking about systemic issues, so. No, so suck it, Zuck. Zuck it. Zuck it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think we should keep that in. Um, Anyway, yeah, so (laughs) that seems like a weird time to make a plug for, like, following us on the socials. But um, be a part of our controversy party and hang out with us on the socials. Come hang out with us while we influence legislation, apparently. I mean, that's always been my dream. I just never thought that this would be the avenue by which I would accomplish it. I mean, same. I kind of always thought it would be more related to healthcare and ableism, but you yeah, know. right. Prison reform for me—that's my dream job. But okay, you know, whatever. Uh, disabilities rights. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, nope. apparently it's our murder podcast. Cool. I mean, cool. If this is what it is, I mean, yeah. I'm okay peaking now. I mean, I thought I peaked with Ed Gein. So, <laughs> how many people could say that? All right, we should go now. <laughs> So follow us on the socials as yep. we ruin people's electoral process. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mid-wretched everywhere. That's right. And uh, we can't wait to see you guys again next week and all the weeks after. Um, in the meantime, you know, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care Be of nice. And each other. And eat cheese. And know that we, know that we love you. Love you. Love you. Okay. Bye, guys. This phone has like a really strong... Oh, a rainbow. Look, Murder Husband sent me a picture of a rainbow. Aww. Isn't that nice? That's so nice. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. I love that. Okay, that was worth looking. So, <laughs> and now it's off. Okay. <laughs> so.